Marvelites, you are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale August 25th, 2021. We are celebrating What If Month. This is week 29 of What If Month, and I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. <laughs> I'm Tucker Marcus. I <laughs> know <laughs> uh, we are in week four uh, <laughs> as we have been celebrating all month long, talking about What If Comics, making sure everybody knows to go and experience Marvel Studios' What If exclusively on Disney+. Every episode is going to be an incredible joyride and Heartbreak City and Super Fun Party. There's all kinds of stuff to talk about there, but we are here to talk about Marvel Comics. Tucker, tell me something cool. Ooh, when saw the Green Knight in theaters, first movie back in theaters for me. Absolutely awesome. Highly recommended. It was so good. How about you? How you doing? I'm doing really well. I got a whole bunch of Transformers that just came in. I had a three-day weekend recently where I saw Marvel's own Ricky Purden, who is the godfather to my daughter. I have video of them, of Ricky doing the hokey pokey with Catherine, and it's really cute. Ricky Purden, wonderful human. Everybody should go say hi to him on social media. Yeah, we had a great time. Uh, I took a day off from work and we went up to my mom's place and it was rather lovely. Um, And while I was there, I read a bunch of the comics that we're going to talk today because this is the show about all the new Marvel comics on sale. We're going to give you our picks of the week, the books we are so excited about. We also talk about the books that are hitting collections and Marvel Unlimited this week. And then we have our reading club and it is What If Month. What are we talking about and who are we talking to, Tucker? This week, we are catching up with Marvel Comics assistant editor Kat Gregorowitz, who is providing some really interesting insights on the work that is being done around the House of Ideas right now. And we are reading three issues of What If, two from the original series and one from the 1989 series. And the first two from 77 are issues number 24 and 47. Then the third one from 89 is issue number four. So yeah, a bunch of excellent what-if material to dive into, and from a really unique, cool perspective as well. Yeah. Let's talk about some brand new Marvel comics. Let's start off with Cable Reloaded, number one, one of our picks of the week. And this issue is written by Al Ewing with art by Bob Quinn, colors by Hava Tartaglia, letters by VCs Joe Sabino, and it is perfect for someone who is reading the Last Annihilation series of books. The Last Annihilation, if you don't remember us talking about it, is this big epic storyline that is going all around the cosmic part of the Marvel Universe as Dormammu is trying a new way to infiltrate our universe and take over. So that is sort of the big setup on one side. On the other side is the cable of it all. If you missed the last cable series, it really focused on the younger cable coming into his own in the age of Krakoa, growing up, hunting down strife and clones and all this stuff. But it ended with the return of old man cable. So it's him getting enlisted to help out with the fight against Dormammu in this storyline. It's rad as hell. He has to form a team. So his team includes Cannonball, Boom Boom, Wizkid, an Iraqi mutant, and Lila Cheney. Come on. This is friggin' rad as hell. He is basically taking orders from Rocket Raccoon. There's a sequence in here with Cable and Rocket Raccoon, which I absolutely loved. It was really, really great. It is writer Al Ewing having a lot of fun with time travel and, and character and just like playing into the lore of different characters and it's a blast. But the the mission for this book is sort of jumping off the last issue of the last Annihilation storyline, which is 
they need a giant weapon to basically fire at a giant demonic presence. So they're looking for a massive gun. And this is all about getting the dude who's all about big guns and pouches to find the biggest gun. And it is a blast. It feels like a bit of classic cable, but not pulled down by any of the like the lore about cable. It is just like free and clear and exciting. And if you've never read a cable book, I think this one it could be totally perfect to get a sense of why I love the character so much. So please, please check it out. So good. And my pick this week is Spider-Man Life Story Annual number one. It's written by Chip Zdarsky with pencils by the great, the incredible Mark Bagley with inks by Andrew Hennessy, colors by Matt Mila, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. This is an entire issue that isn't really about Spider-Man. It's actually kind of about Jane Jonah Jameson's life story. And it goes in a direction that you really couldn't predict. So I don't really want to talk too much about what happens to Jonah, although the cover with Jonah standing behind bars does tip off where the story at least begins. And it's very, very fascinating. But overall, I'll just say, this is an issue that really challenges the character of J. Jonah Jameson. I think for a writer as thoughtful and talented as Chip, you have this question of like, okay, Jonah hates Spider-Man, but asking why and probing that and pushing that to its limits. Is there room for redemption there? Uh, So many questions like that that are totally worthy of a deep dive like this. And this is a story here that spans 50 or so years all in one issue. It's absolutely beautiful. I think this has become the trademark for me of a Chip Zdarsky book is the emotional payoff you get from reading a story like this. And it's just, I think, so well done. There's also incredible action in here. There's great peaks and valleys to the entire story. And obviously, it's all brought to you by one of the goats with Mark Bagley. What a great issue. Absolutely beautiful. I think totally worthy of the life story banner, um, which has a really, really high watermark for what that means and how good those stories are. And this one lives right up to it. Yeah, seriously, man, it's just freaking fantastic. Also fantastic is Marvel's Voices Identity Number 1. This one is a wonderful big celebration of Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander creators and characters. It is a stacked book full of amazing talents. Jean Luen Yang, Marcus Toe, Christina Strain, Jason Liu, Greg Pak, Alyssa Wong, Wills Portacio, Jeremy Holt, Alti Fermencia, Ken Niyamura, Chris Lee, Marshall Ahmed, Sabir Pirzada, Maureen Gu, Lean Yoshi. I mean, there, I just spouted off a lot of names, but there's a ton of amazing creators in this book. It is an anthology, eight stories starring a whole host of characters. You get like a, a, an essay, you get an interview with legendary creator Larry Hama. It opens with a really wonderful Shang-Chi storyline. We've got a Christina Strain Jubilee story, which is terrific. It's great. We've got some of the uh, more recent characters like Wave showing up here in a really wonderful story with Bishop, of all people, from the X-Men. But it got to see Wills Portacio draw Bishop in the year of our Lord 2021. The man who drew Bishop in his beautiful, flowing, curly mullet that just captivated a young Ryan Panagos as a kid, made Bishop one of my favorite characters. Will's coming back to the character now, 30 years later, and still stunning, stunning, stunning. Every single story in this is a a true banger. It is wonderful. I think this is just a reminder that 
everyone can tell amazing stories and we have a wide breadth of incredible characters of all backgrounds and wide breadth of creators of all backgrounds who have Marvel in their hearts and can tell these incredible stories. It's truly something special, as is all these Marvel Voices books. I'm, I'm glad we're doing them and I want them to continue on forever and ever. Um, normally we do three books, but I'm throwing a fourth one in here real quick as one of the picks. Wolverine number 15. Dude, how good is this issue? Hi, it's great. I mean, it just, it knocks you back in your chair. Yeah, from the, the cover by Adam Kubert and Frank Martin with like Wolverine facing the new like bad guy that they introduced last issue from Krakoa, Sever Blackmore, where Wolverine, you can see the adamantium spine and one of his arms because the battle has been so brutal to all through the story where you get to get the backstory of Sever, you get the backstory of Salem, the big bad that was introduced during Ten of Swords. This is written by Ben Percy, penciled by Adam Kubert and colored by Frank Martin. VC's Corey Pettit does the letters. Look, I, I will read, it's not too much of a spoiler, the last line of the book, Wolverine saying, now it's personal. I'm ready to make death. Like, that's the tone of the book. It's just drums coming up, guitars wailing, snicked, snicked. Everybody's going to get hurt. It's great. This book friggin' rules. So good. All right. Now we are jumping into all the new Marvel comics that are headed your way this week. And we're kicking it off with Alien number six and right in the opening pages zero to 60 and literally three pages maybe is just the alien universe we know and love this is becoming really great character story like there's a really wonderful character at the heart of this tale that we're getting to know better and better getting to know his family story his backstory all of that stuff and it really connects there's also some i don't want to say how or what but like there's some alien three type stuff happening in a certain way that I am very, very into that I just think is a really cool element of the alien universe. Another cool issue. Yeah. Uh, we've got Amazing Fantasy issue number two here. This is uh, a big, cool, weird sort of alternate reality type story written and drawn by Kari Andrews. Kari's got this really cool cartoony style. It's got high fantasy bits to it. It's got weird sword and sorcery things going on in here. It's Creepy as we're following versions of Black Widow, Spider-Man, and Captain America as they are on this sort of dimension, island, universe, whatever it is, because there's a lot of questions going on. Uh, but the last panel, I was like, all right, now what's happening? Which is a lot of fun. I'm really digging this series. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up, we have Amazing Spider-Man number 72 as we speed towards Nick Spencer's conclusion here with ASM. And we are in the midst of Sinister War and what a big, dramatic, wild conclusion it is panning out to be. There's a couple of characters that pop up here with really rich, deep, long legacy histories with Spider-Man that mean very specific things to this character at very specific points in this character's history. And I love it. So a lot going on here in ASM. And hey, as we go from strength to strength here from this to the Beyond story that's just coming out, I think about that because we just put out some more news about it on Marvel.com. A bunch to be really excited about in the world of Amazing Spider-Man. Another book I almost picked this week is Avengers Annual Number 1. Why did I almost pick it? Well, it's a team-up between Captain America and Iron Man, and it's got a revelation of someone with an Infinity Stone, which is all that is cool. But is the team-up 
of writer Jed McKay and artist Travel Foreman. And they are like the tango and cash of my comic book mind. <laughs> so good. This issue is tremendous. There's some beautiful illustrations throughout this by Travel. And Jed has been telling the story of the, you know, trying to discover who the Infinity wielders are. It actually introduces a new synthetic person character into the Marvel canon. And they have a hold of one of the stones. What does that mean? Maybe good, maybe bad. We'll see. But this is the eighth and the the final part of these annuals. It also has the conclusion of the Nick Fury storyline where Jed has been teaming up with Juan Ferreira and it's beautiful and fun and weird. The thing to know is last week we had Black Cat number eight, which actually follows this issue. So chronologically, you should read this before Black Cat number eight, but things happen and and that's the way it goes. Um, That's all. It's fine. It's going to be fine for the rest of time because these are great damn comics. I totally agree. It's all going to be okay. It's fine. Um, Black Widow number 10. That's next up. It is just glorious, 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 beautiful, amazing stuff. Um, There is a particular sequence right in the middle of this issue. It's not quite done in silhouette, but it's set against a white background and you see Widow in this incredible fight sequence, but it's like I'm just give a rough estimation. There's like 60-ish panels on a on a this double page spread. I think it speaks to how incredible Elena Casagrande, who's joined by Rafael de la Torre on this issue, how incredible this artist's team is on this series because like I feel like they're just doing things that you would expect out of like decades long veterans, just incredible stuff. And obviously comes from the visionary mind of Kelly Thompson, just so much to love in this series as per usual. Yeah. All right. We've got Conan, the barbarian number 24 this week, Conan on a boat. What more do you need? You got Conan (laughs) on a boat, having some drinks, having some stories, getting into some shipwrecks. And uh, it leads into a story with Belit, the pirate queen, which is going to be rad uh next up look out dark hawk fans because we got a new dark hawk this is dark hawk number one and let me just say i've been helping out put together some of these interviews that writer kyle higgins has been doing with people who know a lot about multiple sclerosis which is a big part of this story ms is a really big part of this story and it's really thoughtfully and wonderfully done and wonderfully executed. There's an interview in the back of this issue with Brooke Pelsinski, who's an artist that is really wonderful and thoughtful and and sheds a lot of light on not just this character in this story, but in the broader way about MS and about telling a story about a character who has MS that really shows a varied experience and that there is so much more to a story like that than one might expect. So a really rich, deep story that's being kicked off right here, done with a lot of care and keep an eye on marvel.com. We're going to be running extended interviews of the ones that are going to be in the backs of these upcoming number one, two, three, things like that. So uh, a lot to enjoy here uh, for Darkhawk fans and a lot to enjoy for uh, fans of new stuff coming to the MU. Tucker. I just realized we haven't been giving out awards. <laughs> You're right. 
What are we doing with ourselves? What are we doing? Listeners, we've we've been recording for a while today, so forgive us. Normally, we give out awards to various books. So we'll think about that as we move forward. Yes. The next book is Extreme Carnage Riot Number 1. It's following this Extreme Carnage storyline. The piece that I dig in here is Andy Benton and what she's been through, a character who was introduced during the um, Agent Venom storyline and, and really getting to connect back with Flash Thompson in this book and where what she's going through and where she comes out of, as we see it specifically in this issue. I'm glad. I'm a big Andy Benton fan. 100% agreed. And now as we dive into the next issue, which is Nonstop Spider-Man number four, henceforth, we shall be doling out the Ryan and Tucker Remembrance Award. Uh, not because we're going anywhere. But because it's in uh, remembrance of our remembering to do the awards. <laughs> uh, but I'm handing out the Ryan and Tucker Remembrance Award to who else? Chris Pachalo. This issue is a feast for the eyes, as every single Chris Pachalo issue is. This series, as we've talked about before, it's about action. It's about seeing Spidey flying through the air, going through it. So it really is a nonstop, really fast-paced type story. And that's why you want an artist like Chris Pachalo on it. And that's what he does so incredibly well. So uh, this is another great entry into that. And it heads off in another direction that asks, what if nonstop Spider-Man got stopped? I think uh, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right, we are into the Star Wars of it all with Star Wars Darth Vader number 15. This one is really getting a little bit more into the character who was introduced, I don't know, six, eight months ago, Oshi of Bestoon, the assassin who was made to uh, sort of take down Vader by the Emperor, but ended up getting punked like a punk because everybody goes against Vader as a punk. So my uh, Ryan and Tucker Remembrance Award goes to Raphael Ianco for just continuing to absolutely crush on this series. Oh, yeah. Next Star Wars book we have this week is Star Wars Dr. Afra number 13. And speaking of Vader, that's one of the finest relationships in modern Star Wars storytelling for me over the past few years is the one between Dr. Afra and Darth Vader. Of course, they were bound to run into each other at one point or another, and here they go. I love diving into that relationship. I think it really highlights the sort of darker elements of Dr. Afra and maybe Afra's worst instincts. So seeing that in contrast or in relationship to Darth Vader is always so much fun. We get plenty of that right here. Yeah. Um, all right, we are on to Strange Academy number 12. Big, big issue for the series. We get the giant battle as the magic behind Calvin is fully revealed and how that affects the entire student body. It is incredible. Uh, I will give my Ryan and Tucker Remembrance Award to the way that the students have to beat back the big bad. It's intense. It's wild. It's gross. It's everything and more. All right, next up we have Symbiote Spider-Man Crossroads number two. In this issue, I want to give the Ryan and Tucker Remembrance Award to the Hulk, who pops up in here for some great, great action. I think Greg absolutely crushes the action sequences in here. How that works, what exactly happens, you'll have to read to find out. But uh, I think it's just wonderfully, wonderfully done. And then just when you thought the action couldn't get crazier, bigger, wild enough, somebody or something, uh, one of my faves pops up on the last page. And it's really cool to see. 
Yeah. This issue kind of also ties into one of the what if stories we were talking with Kat about later this episode. And we're talking about next Thorn number 16, which is one of the books Kat edits. In this issue, uh, it's really a little bit of a sort of pause between some of the more universal, terrifying chaos that the book has gone through, uh, where it, it's a lot of Thor without his hammer, powered down a little bit and hanging out with Jane Foster or going to see his dad. But I'm going to give my Ryan and Tucker Remembrance Award to the sequence of round hot dogs. Thor and Jane are walking down the street and he's like, oh, look over there, hot dogs. And he puts on an accent and there's a whole sequence in here, which is just hilarious and wonderful. And uh, Donnie Cates continues to surprise and delight with this book and great art by guest artist Michele Bandini. Oh, yeah, totally agreed. Next up, we have United States of Captain America number three. Uh, and this issue has two stories in it. One is called Looking for Uncle Sam, which is by writer Christopher Cantwell and artist Dale Eaglesham. And the second one is called People Like Us, which is written by Darcy Little Badger with pencils by David Cutler. This is a great issue that, as we have been doing with these United States of Captain America issues, focusing on sort of local caps, these figures in different communities across the United States that come into contact with Steve Rogers and have their own unique relationships with the mantle of Captain America. In this one, we have Joe Gomez, who's Captain America of the Kickapoo tribe. And it is so, so much fun to see Joe Gomez come to life in this issue. Um, and then the second story written by Darcy Little Badger, I think is just awesome. It is so much fun. That's why I want to give my my Brian Tucker Remembrance Award to as well as Darcy Little Badger, because you look at it and you go, has Darcy been writing Marvel Comics for like 10 years? Because it really instantly feels like that. There's certain trademarks that you just, that you can pick up on that I just think are really hard to capture. And somehow Darcy Little Badger does it right away in here. And I just think it's really, really well executed. Yeah. All right, last new book of the week is Winter Guard number one. Um, I will say, I am not super knowledgeable about either Darkhawk or the Winter Guard, and I really dug both the number ones this week. This one was was great. It was a lot of fun getting to see these characters and um, diving into a little bit of what this team is. If you don't know the Winter Guard, they are essentially Russia's answer to the Avengers. So you have super soldiers and, and mutants and synthesoids and all. And I think this is one of Ryan Cady's first pieces for Marvel. He came out of the DC writing program, if I remember correctly. Um, but uh, I will give my Ryan Itaka Remembrance Award to artist Jan Basildua. The fight sequences, especially as you get into the battle between the Winter Guard and uh, Yelena and the Red Guardian, that that's sort of the crux of the storyline. It's what's going on. Why do some former members of the Winter Guard or uh, former members of Russia's you know, super society why are they fighting against the Winter Guard? What does it all mean? How does this tie into Avengers? It's it's fantastic. It's a really good issue. Yeah. All right. That's what we have for fresh floppies this week. Now we look over to coming collections. There is a bunch of stuff, more than usual this week even. I'm looking at Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Squirrels just want to have fun. How awesome is that? You have Venom by Donny Cates, Volume 6, King in Black. Pick that up in collection if you don't already have it. And then look to, this is really fun, the sort of, Origins of modern Guardians of the Galaxy coming in the form of Guardians of the Galaxy by Abna and Landing Complete Collection. There's both volumes one and two coming out this week. 
over in Marvel Unlimited, a ton of issues out this week. Third issue of Heroes Reborn, which again, keep telling you, read that book. You got some runaways. You got the first issue of the current Shang-Chi series, which is really, really good. We love that one over here. We got some Way of X, Mighty Valkyries. And I, I will say, you got to check out Immortal Hulk Time of Monsters number one. It's got art by Juan Ferreira doing a really weird Hulk story. 10,000 years in the past Hulk story. It's it's something special. So much excellent stuff this week. But right now, we are going to go over to our reading club with Marvel Comics assistant editor Kat Gregorowitz, who is joining us to talk about a bunch of what if as we close out this glorious, amazing What If Month, and it will not be the end of our coverage of What If Stories. I am certain that we will return to them many, many more times in the future. But on this one, if you're reading on Marvel Unlimited, go check out What If number 24 and 47 from the 1977 series and What If number four from the 89 series as you listen to our chat with Kakergorowitz. Tucker, Tucker, Tucker. Hold on to your butt once more. We are diving deep into the annals of What If. And we have a brand new guest with us, Kat Gregorowitz, assistant editor for Marvel Comics. Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Kat, I'm so excited to talk to you because this has been a really great thing about the What If Month that we've been doing here on the show is that we're totally like covering all angles of what if and what if fandom, what if creation, what if influence, all of these things from like Ralph and Peter from the old school days to to you, you just started at the old humble hallways of the House of Ideas. Can you tell us a little bit about where you coming over from, your position, when that all went down? It must have been crazy, especially I feel like that all happened during the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah. So I actually have like a graphic design background, had just graduated out of grad school, literally the year prior, applied into talent management, got it, which was really exciting, moved back to New York City, and then worked two days in office, and then everybody started working from home, and all the shutdowns happened. (laughs) And yeah, now I'm an assistant editor since October, meeting everybody remote (laughs) once again. It's a really fun job. It's really hard, but it's really rewarding. Most of the time, I feel like I'm really learning a lot because I come from more of like a video game, manga, image comic background and and webtoons background. So I definitely feel like I've jumped on like a Marvel train a little bit later in my life. But it's great. You know, everybody comes from a different background. I've learned and learning from different years of comics and, and different areas of comics, which I think makes obviously the storytelling really powerful and fun because of all these avenues that we come from. Yeah, I hasten to add. There for our our listeners, especially our listeners who who tuned into last week's episode. Kat, you worked directly with senior editor Will Moss on a bunch of different books. And I could not imagine a better person to enter the world of Marvel Comics alongside. What's that been like? Can you talk a little bit about the books that you've been on? And and that would be a pretty hard thing to quantify at this point, what you've learned so far, but like at least the concrete stuff. What have you been working on with Will? Yeah, he's fantastic. He's super nice, super patient. And I'm not just saying that because obviously he, <laughs> I work for him. Um, no, he's super great and very supportive on, you know, helping me learn, you know, remotely. And um, I work under two other editors. So he's been great on 
helping me, you know, just not just his books, but everybody else's that I'm under. And so I work on, obviously I worked on Spider Shadow with him, which was like a geek out moment for me because I had that same moment with like Chip Sardowski, um, <laughs> being like a huge fan of his. And then like one of the first books I was on is Spider Shadow with him. So I definitely had a fangirl moment. And then I've been working on Thor, which has been really fun with Donnie and Nick and Matt and all them. We got Black Panther going. Um, I worked on Beta Ray Bill, which made me yeah. like, a huge fan of Beta Ray Bill. Oh, just that God, mini. yeah. Yeah, I, that's probably <laughs> one of my favorites. <laughs> and I feel bad because I feel biased that I worked on it. But I'm like, this is such a good book. This is such a great mini series that we got going on. So it's fun to be able to work on like one with all these big names and be in the room for lack of a better word, Zoom Zoom rooms, I guess, um, with all these great people. And Will's great on, you know, having me, my voice in there as well, um, having my contributions and, you know, really great conversations with him and really great to just like be able to go to him with any questions that I have too. Like he's very, very kind in, you know, having those moments, which I think has helped me learn a lot better as well too, because I'm not afraid to screw up and, you know, have that learning process happen, obviously. You you had mentioned that you come from more of a video game, manga, anime, webtoons background. What are some of the things that, you know, you think about in terms of creativity and editing and storytelling that you, you kind of look back at your other backgrounds for? Um, I think it really helps. Like I said, I have a graphic design background and illustration background. So I feel like I definitely respond to maybe how things look first. You know, we look at covers as well. We look at recap pages, coloring and inks that come in. So I feel like at times that's where my a lot of my strength is. And then with my background with knowing webtoons and knowing, you know, manga, obviously it's a very different style at times from Marvel because Marvel has a lot of traditions more so than I think webtoons and manga in a different style completely. But I think it helps. Uh, there's a lot of artists I've met that are in similar boats where, you know, they've grown up with anime and manga more so than traditional Marvel. And it shows in their artwork, which I think is really fun to be able to open up that door and have these different avenues start to happen. Because even though Marvel is very, you know, tradition wise with a look and a brand, it's great to keep moving forward and thinking about what's next. What are people excited about? What are people going to want to read in the future? Not just, you know, traditional wise, but in these new ways of thinking, these new looks that can happen, you know, and storytelling that can happen, especially. The most important thing isn't that you're the biggest fan in the world of Marvel Comics. The most important thing is that you're good at your job. That's it. You know, like, can you objectively jump into these stories and be a useful asset, shepherd these things along, specifically in editorial, which is like, 12 different jobs combined into yeah. one. So yeah, I just think that's that's really, really cool. To dive a little bit further into that, right before we get into our what-if stories here, I'm super interested to hear what were the manga books you were reading? What were the video games yeah. you were playing? Like all of those things that added up and made you have that moment of realization where you went, oh, there are people out there who are making these things. I yeah. want to do that. I want to be a creative person. I want to jump in. I, I want to pursue these things as a career. What were those influences for you? So, yeah, I grew up reading like 80s, 90s, early 2000s manga, like in with Inuyasha especially. That's probably my biggest go-to first. Dragon Ball Z, Pokemon for like definitely that era uh, that I grew up in was definitely Pokemon. 
but yeah, I started branching out into like there's Fushigi Yugi, which is like a eighties Japanese Chinese manga. And just that fantastical aspect of going into these like feudal era worlds from these modern eras always really like brought me a lot of joy, which I think can relate even now to like, I've been reading and watching Demon Slayer. So bringing that new aspect to it and bringing it into these kind of like fantastical worlds of demons and and monsters and the trope of like the villain versus like this like normal person that becomes the hero and I grew up doing that similar in video games like I grew up on Zelda I grew up on playing you know a lot of Star Wars games Spider-Man oh my god was like one of my favorite games and I feel like that's how I got into the Marvel world is because at some point they just kind of collapse on each other and overlap and you start to feed into these different avenues of okay I'm really into this and this looks similar to what I like so let me jump into this and that's kind of where it became where I realized like there's people that actually you know work behind all of this and how do I get into that you know and growing up drawing my favorite people and favorite characters and you know it sinks in as you get older like oh my god there's actual people that work behind this to make it happen and then you start researching into like how in what way can I help join that crew and become the geek <laughs> and the nerd that I always wanted to be you know like with these people and talk to them about it so it's I feel like it's not just the straightforward line that people think is like oh I grew up with Marvel and I've stuck with Marvel it's like no it takes you on this like weird story and avenue that brings you I feel like to where you need to be and how you get into these places and even now you know there's all these stories that I still get to learn about and I feel like just being like passionate about it being a sponge and and listening and growing your reading list <laughs> exponentially you know and being open to these you know different styles different artwork different people different stories is really helpful to have you learn you know Marvel's history especially yeah it's it's one of the things that I've come to really enjoy about doing this show especially with Tucker and our producer Jasmine and, and Megan is I know too much about Marvel. Like it's just too, my brain is too full of Marvel things and they know a ton, but when the discovery hits where I can introduce something to Tucker or to, to jazz and like them finding a writer or an artist or a book that has meant a lot to me and seeing that same spark connect with them it just reminds me of how timeless our stories are and how cool they are. And you, you know, you're talking about manga. It's like, I've read 900 chapters of One Piece, I think. And they're like 12 pages each. So it's a little bit different than a, a, a comic, but I've read a lot of One Piece. I've read every single Dragon Ball thing. You know, like I love that kind of stuff too. And I think there's room for all of it. And when it connects you to these characters and these stories, when you find an emotional hook, it doesn't matter where it's coming from. And I think that's an important thing for any of our listeners to remember. It's like, like what you like, get excited about it and let that sort of influence where you go from there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I mean, it, that, that I think gives us a good platform to jump off of here as we get into our what if stuff for listeners. Today, we're covering three issues of what if that's um, from the original series of 1977, that's what if number 24 and what if number 47, and then from the 89 series, what if number four. So before we get into those books specifically, what does what if represent to you, Kat, as someone who has your background with Marvel Comics and your specific entry into Marvel Comics? How did you get into what if comics and how did you manage the okay, this is mainstream Marvel Universe, this is the 616, this is regular continuity, and what if books are this other thing? And managing the, like, 
emotional resonance or the dramatic resonance of the what if books relative to a universe that itself is still kind of you're still getting a, a foothold in for me what if is really fun because it involves characters that i feel like don't get a lot of spotlight at times or you know i'm all about gender bending or i'm all about putting kind of women in the seat and, and for me that's really important you know like kind of going back onto like the video game world where i've a lot of, you know, it's men characters and it's fun to see a woman character at times. So I think that's what What If kind of represents to me is, is these breaking the rules in this formula at times and seeing what can happen if we explore that avenue. Even the, the, the What If number four that you picked, obviously it's connected to the work that you're, you've been doing, yeah. but, um, you know, Black Cat has some really great moments in there and, and seeing like the paths that the characters go through. So let's backtrack a little bit, go to... Uh, what if number 24, which is what if Spider-Man had rescued Gwen Stacy, written by Tony Isabella, art by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoa, colors by Gafford, letters by Tom Orzakowski, and edited by Denny O'Neill. We've talked a bunch about um, the various editors of the what if books in the past couple of episodes, um, but we haven't really talked about Tony Isabella. Tony um, done a ton of work for Marvel and beyond. I've read this story, gosh, like four or five times, and I... I kind of love it because it's an earlier what if, but it also has that heartbreak. It's just, I love a good heartbreak what if. Those stories that just kick you in the stomach and just walk away. Uh, <laughs> it really makes me happy. What was the first time you read this one? Oh, gosh. This is one of the ones I feel like, I feel like even if you're not into Marvel, like you know of this one. So I think high school, middle school. I cannot pinpoint exactly when I read this, but it's been a few times that I have read this one. And I just thought it was like the perfect one to always, always go to. Yeah. The, it, out of all the what ifs we've read this month, this is definitely the one that connected with me emotionally the most. I mean, my God, like it's so heartbreaking, even in the moments of triumph, like even that one page after Spidey goes and talks to the watcher and gets his second chance the page where you see it turn and you see it go right. That's actually kind of the most heartbreaking page of all to me. It's pretty incredible, the stuff that's going in here. Kat, are you able to, when reading these kind of stories, when reading something like this, are you able to unpack story-wise as someone who's responsible for and is in the craft of shepherding story along, whether that's visually or through the written word or through whatever it might be, the gestalt of what makes up a comic book. Like, are you able to unpack what makes a book like this special or what the influence of a story like this has on you? Can you look at it and go like that panel right there? That's what makes this special. Is that something that you, that you do when you're, you can look back on a book like this, especially that you've read multiple times? Oh yeah. I hope to get to that expert level. Definitely. Like I'm, I'm sure all these big, Editors, definitely it comes naturally to them. Um, but I'm, I've definitely started to see it when when editing books is is those beats that happen. You know, you you learn with your writer, you know, and, and with your artist on, okay, what is the emotional beat that's happening here? It was in this panel, but what if we have it on the next page and it flips and we see that during this panel instead to really bring home what we're trying to bring here. It definitely comes into the page turn, I've realized. That page turn with you know, a double page spread or a full splash page really, 
I think really benefits at times when you have that moment happen on the next page. And it leaves that lingering feeling for a reader where you're like, I, I need to turn the page. I need to see what happens next. And I think this one does it really well where you're like, you know what happened, obviously, and the readers know what happened, but it's still heartbreaking to see. And it's still even heartbreaking to see how easily it could have gone right just by something done small and different in these panels. Um, one of the things I just want to shout out is that what's great about this is that Gil Kane, who penciled the original Death of Gwen Stacy story in, in 73, penciled this story. Obviously, inking is a little bit different. John Romita Sr. inked the original, but I think they do such a great job giving the exact vibe and style. Like, I I forgot that this book was from 1980, you know, like the beginning of the 80s. It felt like an exact pull from that early 100s time period of Amazing Spider-Man. So I wanted to make sure we we mentioned that as well. Yeah, totally. All right, let's move on to uh, another what if, which is what if number 47. What if Loki had found the hammer of Thor? We have talked about this recently here on the show, but I, I thought it was good to revisit it because I want to hear your perspective and your thoughts on this one. It's written by Peter B. Gillis, pencils by Kelly Jones, beautiful cover by Bill Sankevich, inks by Sam De La Rosa, colors by Bob Sharon, letters by Squid, and edited by Ralph Macchio, who was on the show and who was wonderful to spend some time with us recently. So this is this is all about Loki finding the Hammer of Thor. Kat, what did you uh, think when you first read this issue? Um, so I actually, this was the first time I was reading this issue. Um, I'm a big fan of Loki for a long time. Obviously the show <laughs> is fantastic. So I was like, this would be perfect because I love Jane as Thor and I love that what if specifically. So I thought this would be kind of maybe a fun one to pick up because I hadn't read it before. And, you know, it's another character I love. It definitely goes down a weird route as well. I feel like I'm a little convoluted at times. I was kind of hoping more for Loki being the focal point, but it definitely did not become that way. <laughs> so I, I feel like I still want that Loki picking up the hammer moment focus, which obviously it has come up in stories now at this point, but it was still great. It was still fun to see. It was still, you know, an interesting arc, and especially after, you know, being on Thor and being on the Prey arc with Blake coming back and, you know, taking over and putting Thor uh, in his place, you know, it was fun to kind of circle back on that moment, obviously not reading it. So it was really fun to have that connective tissue um, with working on that arc and now seeing it in the what if. Uh, it felt like it backtracked and got to see the full story a little bit more <laughs> um, with background. But yeah, like overall, I thought it was a fun read, but definitely at times, I think a hard read. For what yeah. was going on. <laughs> yeah. This is the first time I've read this one as well. And there's so many like interpersonal relationships that like spring up and that like need dealing with when someone else comes in and then they have their dynamic with that character. And then like five more people show up and then like each one of those previous two has their own like repartee with those individual five. That's what it felt, felt like a lot of the time. It's interesting though. And it's interesting just generally, I think like to look at it from a super like elevator perspective of it is sort of a chaotic story. And it's sort of like, there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of dealing with the consequences of like this. What if turn to the left at the start of the story. And I think that's sort of exactly what it should be. Like that's sort of the world that you would get when like Loki has this sort of influence. So just, I think it, it was interesting to look back at it once I finished the issue and, and kind of took it all in to think of it in that way. I'm super curious, Kat, you mentioned working on the current Thor run. I just want to take this opportunity to ask you how that's been. 
How is that all going? It's super fun. I love working on Thor. I feel like it gave me a new appreciation for the character because like I liked Thor, but now I feel like I love Thor, if that makes sense. Um, And Donnie's really fun to work with. And Nick is super, super fun to work with. Matt, I work on multiple stuff with him, but he's on everything. It does phenomenal work, which is just so shocking how this man has time to do all this. Um, Yeah, it's been super fun. I feel like it's one of those books that I feel like has so much in it and things that I'm surprised are going on in it that can happen, especially for a character, you know, that's been around for so long, like what new things Donnie is coming up with to do. And I'm always excited to read his scripts that come in and him and Will, it's fun to see their ideas bounce off of each other. It's super great to learn from Will and Donnie and Nick and Matt, just how they all come up with ideas quick turnarounds on all of it, you know, things that have to be fixed or edited or changed and just how fast that they can come up with these great ideas is just really fun to see happen, even even over email. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you also worked on the recent Thor annual, right? With, uh, yeah. It was written and drawn by Aaron. Aaron Cooter. That book is bonkers. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I can only imagine the joy, delight, and like like roll up your sleeves to have to look at like really zoom in because he packed so much into those panels and those pages i mean it's just insane amount the amount of detail like i'm glad i can see it over you know a computer i could zoom in because just even the first few pages i feel like are just so gorgeous and the way he built the world and made it come alive through the annual i thought it was gorgeous i thought it was beautiful all the characters that you know he's he got to use and also, you know, create. It was really fun. It was super fun on that one. Yeah. Uh, over in this issue, I wanted to shout out Kelly Jones. This is fairly early on in Kelly's comics career. I think, yeah, his first work was about a year before this issue of What If, but uh, I think he'd done a ton of, a lot of, uh, for Marvel, Micronauts, and then he was on Comet Man. Uh, he was on Air Raiders. He's on some weird books, but Dino Riders? God, he was on Dino Riders. <laughs> Friggin' love Dino Riders, man. But I became a huge fan of him when he was at DC, and he did some, he still, I think still does some incredibly cool and moody Batman work. So um, it was cool to see a young Kelly Jones here. There's a page that I'm really looking at, which is in the middle of all the chaos going on. And and Loki is basically just messing everything up. And all the various realms are starting to like stir and come together. And there's, it's a simple page. It's four panels and it's, you know, the frost giants are waking up. The uh, world serpent is, is you don't even see its head or its tail. It's just like moving through water. It's, you know, forces of evil coming. And like, I felt that was such a great sort of, montage you can feel the tension you can feel like if this were a movie like heavy drums and like the onset of war i thought to me that was one of my favorite pages in this whole book and um i just want to make sure we shout out kelly here because i think kelly's a hugely underrated artist at least in marvel circles probably dc fans talk about kelly jones a lot more than than we do I guess that's a good chance now to jump over to the final issue that we're talking about today, which is what if number four from the 1989 series, which is what if the alien costume had possessed Spider-Man? This obviously ties pretty directly into the work 
that you have done on Spider-Man Spider-Shadow, Cat. So was this like required reading from day one of knowing that story was come down the pipeline? Or was this sort of broader context? Was there a direct relationship in general to Spider-Shadow series from this? Or was it sort of like, you know, their ancestors and nothing more? I feel like Chip did a really great job at you know, there's these fun moments in this what if that he definitely brought into the spider shadow and got to really elaborate on, like, especially Kingpin in the end, you know, just what would Kingpin happen at the end? What would it do? And, you know, not even just this one, but the what if of if Spider-Man, you know, was a part of the Fantastic Four, you know, is is great that he brought these kind of two moments in what if and brought them into this bigger mini series. It definitely was not required. Um, I feel like it's definitely great that Spider Shadow you know, I feel like it stands on its own enough that you kind of have the context of obviously this would have happened, but you don't necessarily have to have that history or backstory to really get to involved into this mini series that we did, which I think is great for new readers who want to jump in and don't know how to jump in. And this is like a great fun moment for them. And then if they stumble upon obviously this what if, it definitely, I think, elaborates enough on that history, but you obviously know more now from Chip's iteration of it. Let's give the credits here. Uh, Written by Danny Fingeroth. Pencils by Mark Bagley. This is 1989 Mark, and it's just crushing it. He's so good. Uh, Inks by Keith Williams. Colors by Tom Vincent. Letters by Ken Lopez. Edited by Craig Anderson. And Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief at that point. Yeah, man, I just... Anytime I get to say Mark Bagley and talk about him makes me so happy. And looking at this, it pops, it moves, it's got so much energy. The points where Venom like gets big and scary looks so cool. I think anybody who gets a chance should really, really pick this one up. It's so pretty. It's so pretty and scary at times. When it comes to this story, I mean, one, there are a ton of characters in this issue, as one might expect with like the Secret Wars sort of jumping off point that we have but it just got me wondering do you have favorite marvel characters like is there a favorite that you have does that favorite maybe show up in this issue or not like do you have a favorite marvel character from before you started at marvel and then now one you talked about loving thor now like do you have now one that that you've grown closer to over the past year or so what are your thoughts there yeah uh i Feel like I have like the boring answer of I love Spider-Man growing up, but it's <laughs> <laughs> but it's legit because I played you know the PlayStation Spider-Man yeah, yeah, games. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was and I grew up when you know Tommy McGuire was becoming Spider-Man and those movies were coming out, so it was easy to jump into loving Spider-Man and Spider-Verse. Now is like one of my favorite movies, just from the sheer animation, you know, and and all the characters that get to come into play. So like I've always loved Miles, I've always loved Peter. I feel like now I definitely am in love with Shang-Chi. DK has been drawing him beautifully and uh, he really loves anime and manga. So I feel like I definitely kind of look to that book a lot as kind of that bridging that gap a little bit. Beta Ray has become exponentially one of my favorite. Dr. Afra for sure is one of my favorites now. And those morally ambiguous characters like Loki and Dr. Afra, I'm just like, I'm here for it. Those chaotic neutral ones, I'm, I'm all for <laughs> it. So, I'm sold. <laughs> I remember after reading Beta Ray Bill number one, which I flipped out about on the show, I actually emailed you and Will Moss. Good God, that issue number one made me cry. 
It was so vulnerable and beautiful. Bitter Red Bill has been one of my favorites as well for a very long time. So I, I loved the combination of like awesome Daniel Warren Johnson, like scratchy, messed yes. up, crazy action with like the most heartfelt and beautiful and quiet moments you'll ever see in a comic. Anyway, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about. No worries. <laughs> I could definitely go on and rant about that. That became, I, I came on about when one was almost completed. So I, I, I started helping Will on that a little bit afterward. And like my mouth just dropped when I saw the double page spreads. Mike just blew it out of the park with the colors. Like I thought I loved the pages as the inks and then the colors came in and I was like, these are even more amazing that I didn't know that was possible. And yeah, I definitely became like a huge fan <laughs> after all that. All right, back to uh, what if number four. This is probably one of the the what if issues I read early on that first sort of like cemented what a what if should feel like to me as a kid. It is utterly heartbreaking. This is a devastating issue. So many characters die or like put in very upset positions. There's a whole sequence of what the the symbiote does to Peter, and in this universe, it basically like feeds off of him and ages him 60 odd years. And the repercussions for that are so upsetting. And it's like emotionally draining, especially coming back to it now and being a parent and like being in May's shoes when she like doesn't know where Peter is because she's Peter's mom, you know, like she's raised him. And there's just this whole sequence with an old Peter going up and trying to talk to May and it broke me. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic issue on top of the action and, and some really cool visual bits in here. But I think the emotional connection here is the main driving point for why I love this one. Uh, do you have any favorite moments from this issue, Kat? Yeah, I, I was going to point out that point when he goes to see May and he wants to tell her, you know, what happened and he can't. And I feel like especially the moment when MJ goes to the window and seems to recognize, you know, Peter... And that moment, I, th I think it's a caption point, but it was like, May will never see Peter again, you know, and then Peter dies. And, and it's just like, oh, my God, you know, it, I loved it because it's not all action. And I feel like a lot of comics, you know, we need those peaks and valleys to happen to really appreciate those scenes. And just that moment where she knows that she'll never see Peter again just was like so heartbreaking and beautifully done. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's like that's the best of what comics is to me is just something that can take you in the space of 20 or so pages and have you by the throat or have you by, you know, the heart. I just think it's such great stuff. I looking at the broader, like what if throughout history, like does this one stand there sort of like up there with the greatest emotional peaks for you? And I mean, we talked about the Gwen Stacy story being super emotional as well, but like, I'm just curious, like, at the biggest, broadest level, what you think about when you think of, like, your favorite what-ifs or the, the like, best what-if moments, things like that. Is this one up there? Yeah, I would definitely say so. I mean, it's not just only fun to see what could happen to these characters, you know, but it's great when it brings that emotional quality. And I feel like it's great when you can sacrifice a character in the what if series, especially to kind of bring home the point of like, just because this could have happened doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good ending. So I think that that's kind of what resonates with me is 
what repercussion happens because we didn't do this one thing. And for me, it's always great, I think, to see characters that we love die at times. And those emotional moments really resonate, I think, with people because you realize how expendable characters can become, I think. Right. Before we wrap, I will leave you two and, and our audience with a couple of fun tidbits about the creators here. So the writer, Danny Fingeroth, was a longtime editor of Amazing Spider-Man, worked with Mark Bagley on a lot of Amazing Spider-Man, especially the time period that I was really reading uh, Spidey, um, the Carnage era and and, uh, Maximum Carnage and stuff like that. But he is also a a writer of many, many comics, including What If Dazzler Had Become Herald of Galactus, (laughs) a classic story. We can thank Danny Fingeroth for that one. And then I was looking at uh, the nearly 600 issues that Mark Bagley has drawn since 1987. This issue is within his first 40. That's within his first (laughs) two years of comics. He drew almost 40 comics in about two years and change. And this is him at the start of a 30 plus year career. Friggin legend. You say, oh, 35 years, he's been at Marvel for a really long time. But when you say over 600 books, that's a ridiculous rate that he's been carrying for 35 years. And I don't know anyone in Marvel history, maybe, that has kept that level for that long and is still working on A-list books, still putting in incredible work to this day. And not just that, but still doing it like at a pace that is sort of unbelievable. It's crazy. We talk about it every single time we read a Mark Bagley book, how insane it is what he's doing. And yeah, I guess in that context, Ryan, what he's been doing exactly the same way for 35 years. Crazy. It's something special. The number from my database, the number of pages he's drawn and this, you know, give or take could be whatever, Mm. (laughs) 12,070 comic book pages. Yeah, this has been the uh, Marvel's Polis Celebrates Mark Bagley section of the show. Kat, thank you so much for coming on. Um, keep up the great work. Keep learning and keep doing really cool stuff with uh, your amazing coworkers. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really fun. Really great to talk with you all. Thank you so much, Kat. Big thanks again to Kat for coming to Marvel. Um, I hope her story of sort of joining Marvel and her background and stuff is helpful and is inspirational to anybody out there who listens and wants to get into into Marvel. It's There's a way for anybody to do it, um, whether or not you grew up reading Marvel or you just got excited about Marvel or are sort of like, oh, Marvel, yeah. Maybe there's a place for you. <laughs> yeah. And she she clearly loves Marvel and is is learning more as she goes along. I'm excited to see where she goes especially at the learning tree of, of the amazing editors, Sarah Brunstad and Darren Chan and Will Moss. She's going to be a force to be reckoned with in a couple of years. All right, that's a wrap for us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And in celebration of What If Month, Brad has shaved his luxurious head of hair. Oh. He's gotten some white and blue togas and uh, he's working on his first trip to the moon. So good on you, Brad. Good on you, Brad. 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 Brad.
bot. <laughs> like, we are losing it. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Bradatu? Bradatu? Bradatu. Bradatu. <laughs>